Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the areas of holistic wellness and sustainable living practices. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In July 2019, I sat down with Jill Van Jean, CEO of Fatso, a high-performance fat-based peanut butter product that is based in Victoria, BC. Jill is a high-powered entrepreneur who is cutting her teeth in the food production industry with this innovative product that is flying off shelves. She shares with us how her humanitarian work in Uganda helped to fuel her passion for this product and what one of her company's core values an inch wide, mile deep, means to her. We also dive into the environmental consequences of the nut industry, including the almond glut, the extreme humanitarian toll of cashews, and organic versus non-organic peanuts. Jill is passionate about making healthy food available to the masses, and thus she cares deeply about the accessibility and sustainability of the ingredients in Fatso, which we geek out on extensively. Jill also shares with us many of her company milestones, such as successfully auditioning American Idol style for Whole Food Shelf Space, winning over the dragons on Dragon's Dead, and launching into the United States. If you are interested in Whole Foods nutrition, where your food comes from, the food production industry, and startups in general, this is a fast-paced episode that is filled with tasty morsels. Okay, Jill. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. So you have a lot on your plate right now, but I wanted to jump right in and talk first about your product, your brand that you have on the grocery shelves, Fatso. Yeah. Yeah, I founded Fatso in uh, November of 2016, so we're just coming up on our third year, um, and uh, we have gone national. So we're right across the country now, so we're on shelves across the country and um, getting ready to branch into the States in September, which is, wow. uh, yeah, it's really wild. I mean, when I started this, um, I really had no idea that it was going to be successful. I really didn't have like any sort of concept of, you know, what this was supposed to look like in a few years' time. It was really sort of like um, something to fill a void that I've been feeling for a long time, just in terms of finding a career path. And, you know, it was a sort of a desperate sort of, okay, I'm going to make peanut butter, I guess, for a while and see how this goes. And um, so it's really, uh, it's really crazy to look back on these three years and to see um, how much the company has grown. And it just has like a life of its own. Like, it's really interesting. So let's go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Was there an aha moment where you decided... I'm going to make a, a peanut butter product or was it just something you gradually... No, you know, and it's funny, like I, you know, I, I've often listened to stories, like I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the pocket, like how I built this and mm. <clears throat> I, I am always very skeptical. I mean, I'm a founder focused company where like my face, my name is out there and my story is out there and, but I'm actually quite skeptical of companies that are run that way just because the, um, the idea is to put this site like this 
sort of uh, image of success out, this image of, you know, brilliance and this coming to that aha moment. And, you know, I think people really like that because it's really cleanly packaged, right? Mm. And um, for me, that definitely was not the case at all. Um, I actually bought Fatso. Um, I found Fatso. <clears throat> I can go back a bit, but um, Fatso was a... Uh, it was on about two or three shelves in Victoria and uh, I loved the product and um, I had taken a job at a local health food restaurant um, to help try and franchise it and it really was not my career of choice. I had just graduated from um, my master's degree and had done really well in that and uh, just could not find a job. And I think it's a pretty common story for people these days. Uh, and it's, I think it's something that people have difficulty talking about because you invest all this time and money into, you know, this, this future career that you have envisioned for yourself. And, you know, you're told that if you put the, the time and the effort in and advanced education is the cornerstone of a great career. And uh, I had followed, you know, this sort of nebulous advice uh, that I got from, you know, peers and parents and teachers and just, you know, general society that this is sort of the the way it should go. And I found myself um, quite aimless and jobless. And uh, so I was sort of desperate to do anything. And um, I'd been in the food industry for a long time um, during my undergrad. And uh, so this was, you know, it was a fine, it was a fine job, but uh, but we were selling Fatso at this place. And I, I just like, I couldn't get it out of my head. First of all, the name is, uh, I don't know, whether you love it or hate it, you're at least going to start thinking about it. And uh, that has a great advantage in retail. And, you know, when you're walking down the aisles of a grocery store, you the brands all blend together. But you see something called Fatso, you're going to stop and at least you're going to take a look at it, right? So this is a, that's a huge advantage. I thought, you know, brilliant marketing. Um, and the product itself, um, which is a peanut butter that's enriched with plant-based super fat. So it includes coconut oil, avocado oil, MCT oil, chia seeds, flax, and a prebiotic fiber. And, uh, I just thought this is a great product. It tasted fabulous and, uh, we could not keep it in stock at this health food restaurant. So I'd go out to other places that were selling it and I'd talk to grocery managers and say, can you guys get this product? I can never get a hold of these people. They couldn't get a hold of them either, and it just was one of these things where you saw. And it's funny, I, um, you know, I've I've done a lot of thinking about how I've come to this place with Fatso, and this, you know, really, I don't know, it, it, like I'm not a big believer in destiny and fate. Like it's not something that I entertain often. But what I saw in Fatso was this like failing brand that had so much potential and somebody just needed to take a chance on it. And that was very much how I felt about my unemployment situation, about where I was in terms of like, you know, uh, you know, I graduated off my class at, in my, uh, at my university and, you know, I did all this research and I was published and I just thought, God damn it, I just need somebody to like give me a chance, right? And uh, so I think in hindsight, there was something that really resonated with me about the brand there. And uh, I got... <laughs> I got really lucky and you know it's funny because I think um, I was you know I, I wrestle with this idea about like what percentage was Jill's own um you know smarts and savvy with that so and what percentage was just sheer luck and I go back and forth on this and a lot of it was luck because their inventory was seized by VHA because it turned out 
that they had been making fats out of their like basement or their garage or something. Mm. It wasn't even being made in like a um, a food safe kitchen. So, oops. Um, and Viha, just for listeners, is right. the Vancouver Island Health Authority. Yeah, it's it's like it's pretty like every kitchen, every product has to be made in an approved facility just mm-hmm. for health reasons and. This was definitely not being made in an approved facility. So their inventory was seized and the brand was just decimated. Word travel fast. And, you know, once you're associated with um, a lack of food safety, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to come back from that. So I, I went to the people that were running it and said, you know, take this off your hands for X amount of dollars and you just give me the rights to the to the brand and the recipe. And, um, and they did that. And... I took it dark for about three months, about in August, I think. And then um, I spent that three months. And the nice thing was it was like this freshness that was coming to me. Like it was like, oh my goodness, I have this thing. And I'm like, okay, so I don't really know how to do this. But, you know, I did some research and like I optimized the recipe with a nutritionist. We redid the branding. My my cousin Jeremy, um, he had just graduated from like art school, like graphic design school. And I said, I need this brand refreshed and so we worked together on that and uh revamped the recipe built up a social media following because there was hype around it people wanted Mm -hmm. it and it was just a matter of being like hey we're coming back we're gonna be better we're gonna Mm -hmm. be you know different under new management and um and then i went out um to repair the retail relationships that have been Mm -hmm. damaged and uh it's funny because it turns out that that's really where my expertise lie i love doing research um, and that's why I had excelled so much in, um, in my graduate degree, but what is your master's in, um, human security and peace building. The, okay. the easiest way to describe it is, is international development. So okay. I had done uh, research on the nexus between an emerging oil industry and a post-conflict society. And I was, uh, lived in Northern Uganda, um, looking at, uh, returning IDPs and how the oil industry was starting to impact those populations. So I had hopes of coming back to Canada and working with first nations, uh, populations, um, with our own oil and natural gas industries and, uh, you know, seeing how those relationships could develop in a more cohesive way. Um, but, um, it turns out I had this real knack for building a brand and Mm -hmm. I, I, I never knew that about myself. Um, but I think largely it was driven out of, um, a sense of, uh, fear of failing again, Mm -hmm. because I had taken a big blow, um, after graduating from my master's and not finding employment, you know, you have this immense sense of, um, failure and unemployment's like a very, like I I'm very now, I'm now I'm very interested in the topic at the time I was not happy about it but I find that I have like a a very I have a lot of respect for people who um and sympathy for people who are struggling to find work who want work because often it's um it can be a very it's very it's very easy to get depressed and it's very easy to lose the support of friends and family because like oh there's something wrong with you and so um that first year that I launched Fatso, I was like, it was not a comfortable experience, right? And I, I, I operated similar to this during my master's degree, which I was so scared of feeling. I did my master's later in life. I started it when I was 33, 34. And uh, I was so scared of failing at it that I just like had this like crazy drive. Mm. Now, it's great. You produce a lot of work, but it's a very uncomfortable experience. Mm-hmm. So I found this, 
uh, first year of FATSO to be like, I was just like, I just don't want to look back on this and be like, oh yeah, I remember the time that Jill started a peanut butter company, like this sort of crazy harebrained scheme that she had because she was so desperate. So I was like, I, I can't let this happen. <laughs> so um, yeah, I launched, as I said, in November of uh, 2016 and uh, I had about 10 stores and the very first delivery that came, I ended up, uh, I used to make it like a mix, I had two mix stand mixers and I would mix up all the ingredients and then I would, you know, get them into the jars. But if you really think about the process of this, like it is an extremely messy process. Mm, yeah. It's, I mean, it's peanut butter. It's like sticky. It gets everywhere. It's oily. Like it's yeah. just, it's a really tough medium to work with. And as I said, like, I, my forte is not in making peanut butter. My forte is in selling peanut butter. Um, so I, uh, um, quickly realized that I needed to do something that's called co-manufacturing or co-packing where you outsource the, like you give them the recipe and they'll build the product for you yep. and package it. So, um, I did that with a small outfit in Vancouver and, you know, I, I pulled together what little savings I had. I borrowed some money from my parents and, uh, we paid for this first run. How did you find out about this opportunity to to co-manufacture? Well, the when I when I bought Fatso, um, I asked I had a list of the suppliers, so I knew that they were getting their peanut butter from this particular manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So I sort of reverse engineered it and went back to them and said, hmm. "Can you make this for me?" And they said yes, they could do it. Um, it's a big investment though, and I think a lot of people too. Like I have um, a lot of uh, peers, um, in the, uh, food producing world. Mm -hmm. And there's some of us who go the co-packing route and there's other of us, um, some of us who remain, um, true artisanal, uh, small, small produce, uh, small food produce producers. Um, and, uh, it depends on what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So for me, ma making the decision to, uh, co-manufacture was, the single most important part of my success mm -hmm. because as I said like you just can't do it all. yeah I like I'm making yeah. peanut butter it's funny actually when I was living in Uganda I lived up close to the border of South Sudan and Congo and this was an area of conflict for over 40 years um, and it's very much separated from the south of the country which is much more developed I mean you can literally you cross the Nile and it's just like the potholes are the size of like a Volkswagen Beetle they're crazy mm -hmm. So service delivery up in that area is not great. There's ne the the culture never had a real opportunity to develop a um, a wide ranging cuisine, mm -hmm. shall we say? Um, it's a lot of boiled like flours and like millet flour or corn flour, boiled goat, boiled everything. It's uh, it's pretty straightforward. So, but they do harvest um, what they call G nuts, what we would call peanuts, and mm -hmm. we would never be able to get these peanuts here because. They're grown um, in Africa and well, mostly in East Africa, but they're these tiny, sweet peanuts. And the first time I had it, I swore somebody put honey in it. I mean, mm -hmm. it was the sweetest peanut butter I ever had. But I used to go out into the field to do research and uh, I would, you know, pick peanuts and uh, talk with the women because um, women are generally the holders of most of the information. So um, engaging with them out as they did field work um, was a really great way to gather information, but I would always be gifted these huge bags of like raw G nuts. And I felt guilty because I, 
like I didn't know what to do with them. So I enlisted the help of my two friends who were the two young women that worked in the kitchen. I lived with um, three priests in a like old catechism center. It was a really interesting arrangement, but they were um, the staff that um, cooked and I didn't have any friends out there. So they um, became my friends and I asked them to help me teach me how to make peanut butter. So I've learned how to make peanut butter in this extremely manual, extremely traditional way. It's, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It involves rocks and wind and baskets and roasting. It's, it's a real process. It took us about two weeks. So, but, um, as I said, like I, it, that's the only way I've ever made peanut butter. So, uh, and I certainly wasn't going to do that back here in Canada. So, uh, I, I outsourced it to this company, but you know, it was, I, I had this moment. We had, um, four pallets of peanut butter land in my driveway. That was my first one. And I was so excited and we had paid the invoice and I packed up my car and I had all my invoices ready to go to the retailers. And I, in my excitement, I forgot that I should taste the product. Mm. So I went inside and I ripped open a jar and I tasted it. And I just remember sinking to the ground and just like my, the world just like tipped. Oh no. Because it was terrible. It was awful, and they had swapped out one ingredient, a very key ingredient, for something that they thought was more economical. I, that's my belief. Um, so I had... So I, they never came clean on what happened? No, it was a very fraught relationship. It was a pretty... There was no transparency. We're with an amazing manufacturer now, okay. and they, they manufacture for some of the biggest brands out of the States. Um, they've been in the nut butter industry for 80 years and we've had nothing but really great experiences with them. But So what happened to those pallets? Uh, <laughs> well, eventually they got sent back after a number of arguments over the phone. Um, and uh, they were remade, which was, it was just, it was a process of like, I still had to go make good on these orders. So the peanut butter went out. Now, when I say it tasted terrible, to me, it, it just didn't taste right. Mm-hmm. To other people, it was fine-ish, yeah. Yeah. but it certainly was not the product that we had, that that had been on shelves before. No. So. Not something you want to relaunch with. No, no. So it was a really scary um, period of time because I was like, is this going to be over before it even starts? Um, but it was interesting because, uh, you know, these lessons of, you know, this process of becoming like a company founder, of becoming like a CEO and of... Um, navigating a world that I had no experience in. I mean, I never thought to be an entrepreneur. I'd never thought about going into business. I'd never thought about building a brand. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to, I was like, if I didn't get a job, like I was going to go do a PhD. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the, <laughs> that was the plan B. And I'm like really grateful that I didn't do that. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's an interesting experience because um, I have watched people launch companies and fail. Um, I've watched people mismanage companies and, you know, and it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with, like, I mean, people will do what they do and mm. I would never judge them on that. But, um, the process is very specific and, mm. you know, somebody recently asked me like, what does a CEO do? Like what, if you put down your job title CEO, um, what, what does that job look like? And it's a really weird question because 
There isn't a job description for a CEO. It depends on the company. But what I have come to understand is that I'm not good at any one thing. I don't excel at, you know, um, like I was a good researcher. I was a good student, but, you know, it didn't come naturally to me. Um, I, I wasn't a master of anything. Um, I'm pretty good at almost anything. Like I can take something on and like I'll do it fine. <laughs> and what I've kind of understand about what it is to be a CEO is um, it's about identifying the people around you who are the experts and bringing them into your field. And you manage those people. And if you can do that effectively, then you're an effective CEO. So you do a little bit of all of the work, you know, operations, sales, marketing, branding, accounts, um, all of that stuff. And you can kind of get a handle on all of it, but you'll never excel at it. But in each of those positions, you have somebody that's an expert. So when you bought Fatso, was mm-hmm. it just you? Mm-hmm. Okay. For the first two years. So you did everything. I did. I made my first hire last October. How big's the team now? It's three people. <laughs> um, so, so you surrounded yourself with two experts. Two experts, could, yeah. Okay. Well, we have. I mean, we have like an in-house accountant, and yeah. like, and then we have like a graphic designer we use, and we have these. Um, like, we we've just launched into Amazon, which is like the wild west. It's mm. bonkers. Um, but we've brought in. You know, we have somebody that does sort of like PR communication stuff. And uh, so we, I've assembled this sort of team. We have a core group. We have somebody that we call our CGO, Steve Biggs. Um, he was a huge get, um, came in um, in February. And, uh, and then we have an operations manager who was a BCom grad from a local university at Royal Roads. And uh, so that, that's our core team. But mm-hmm. we, I outsource everything else. Yeah. And what I've learned is that's... That's the best way to keep your overhead down yeah. and um, to have people who you can rely on, not as a full-time employee, but as people who can really hone in on really specific things. Mm-hmm. So. I want to back up just a bit. Mm-hmm. You paint a fairly bleak picture about your your past and you're doing mm-hmm. your master's and your frustration, but mm-hmm. from the outside looking in, I've known you now for probably about five years. Mm-hmm you seem like a dynamo at all times. (laughs) Uh, I first met you at an event that we were hosting for Joe Robinson. That's right. Food writer. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I showed up um, fashionably late to to this small gathering (laughs) in a restaurant. And you were there with maybe a dozen people. Mm -hmm. And you were just owning the flow (laughs) of the room. And you were engaging Joe. and, And I could just tell that you were there... You knew a lot about nutrition and you mm-hmm. wanted to know more. And it was, it was really neat to watch you yeah. kind of dive in and you were, you were passionate about it. So I could yeah. tell from that moment. And you've been writing for a food magazine in Victoria, mm-hmm. Eat Magazine, mm-hmm. for how long? Uh, gosh, I think it's been, it was probably about five. I had just started to eat. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when I came out to the article on Ravenhill Herb Farm, um, I think it was probably my third article. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But I had been a writer um, on and off for, I mean, I always had a blog. Yeah. It was always food focused. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've always had an, a really intense passion for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, coming on with Eat was a really, that actually was during my, that was during that period of unemployment. I mean, being a food writer doesn't pay your bills. So... 
I would still count that as like yeah. a quote unquote hobby, but um, it was. I presume you learned a lot. I did about the industry. Yeah, and you you probably worked or wrote about a lot of manufacturers. Well, no, it was mostly like I mean, we're it's a very local focus magazine, mm-hmm. so um, but it did put me in touch with a lot of people that um, had some sort of expertise in food yeah. processing. Um, but like grocery and uh, the grocery industry is a very. I, I, I categorize it as being very separate from yeah. like the like food scene itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason I like food is, and it's, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's what drew me to peanut butter in general. And, you know, even when I was in Uganda, it was always that quest to find something that was interesting and uh, had some history to it, uh, had some substance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, we're very lucky here in Victoria. Uh, we have a really, really intense food scene. Mm. Um, I mean, you guys know this, we live in a place that, um, you know, is just, it's an absolute breadbasket for the rest of the province. Uh, lots of innovation around food, lots of creativity around food. Um, lots of like extreme bents on homesteading and, uh, people who are, very knowledgeable about their food, into slow food. Mm. Uh, it's rare to find somebody who doesn't have a passion for the local food scene mm-hmm. in Victoria. Yeah, that's an amazing place. Yeah. In your first three years now, mm-hmm. has there been a singular move that you've made that has been hands down the best thing that you've done with the company? I mean, I think the decision to, to co-manufacture, honestly, and it's a kind of okay. a boring answer, but... No, I thought that might be your answer. Yeah. It really, I mean, as I said, like I have immense respect for the people who still touch their food, still manufacture their food, um, and who have that hands-on process. Do you feel that buying Fatso as an already existing product Mm -hmm. helped you or actually hindered you during your growth? I mean, it it did help me. I I mean, ultimately, I I wish it was my idea, Mm -hmm. Um, but... Because uh, you had you had a bit of things to navigate through, including uh-huh. the the health authority yeah, yeah. shutdown. Yeah. Did most of your customers know of that? Um, yes, yeah, some of them did. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we just went quiet for mm-hmm. for about three months um, and built up this new social media following and really put the message out that this mm-hmm. is a different product. This is because we, I mean. It was good. I mean, the recipe was fine, um, but it needed to be optimized. I needed I needed to know why we had a percent this percentage of coconut oil. Why are we using this? Um, one of the things that was originally in there was macadamia oil. Really great product, um, but it eliminates everybody that's allergic to tree nuts. Yeah. So people that are allergic to tree nuts naturally gravitate to peanut butter because right. it's the only one they can eat. So we took that out. Um, but you know there was uh, a lot of. I mean, my research background certainly helped, yep. <laughs> but, uh, I think, um, you know, I think, I think co-manufacturing and then, you know, my naivety around the grocery industry did wonders for me in my first two years. It was great. Uh, I no longer have the benefit of being new to the industry. Mm-hmm. I'm well now, well known now and people know that I have the expertise, but when I first came in, it was great because you could bumble into a grocery store and, you know, strike up a conversation with a manager and pitch a product. And normally that's not how it's done. There's mm. brokers that go in through the back door. It's a whole process, right? So, um, 
but uh, what I did, which was really fundamental to to building the company culture that I have today, was that I was in stores every weekend for two years straight. And yes, I ran myself totally ragged. Hmm. And uh, you were doing tastings. And... Yeah, yeah. So it starts in Victoria. So we have this principle that we've now developed into a core company value which is uh, inch wide, mile deep. So what that means is that before we move on to another community, we embed ourselves and we saturate that community so that by the time we decide to pivot, like when when I started with Victoria, and this was just based, I just didn't know what else to do. Mm. I just thought, people have got to taste the product. It tastes so good. Like they'll buy it for the name, but they'll, they need to know like what it tastes like. They need to know why I'm doing this. Um, so I thought, well, the only way I'm going to do that is to get FaceTime with customers. So mm. I would demo, you know, a, like the root seller and uh, save on foods. Tilikum was one of my first retailers. They really gave me a big break there. Um, and like the Red Barns and, you know, so I go around Peppers Foods, all local places to Victoria. And uh, so I'd go around to these places and I would just demo like on a cycle. So I was really well known in the community and people liked me and then they would buy the product and, you know, they would come back because they saw somebody that was passionate about what they were doing and willing to put in, in the time. So that was a, I just didn't really know what else to do. I just thought that's kind of how it had to happen. So, um, and then when, once I had felt like I had a good foothold in Victoria, you know, I'd drive up to Duncan and do the same. Right. And then once I had a good foothold in Duncan and Nanaimo, Finally, I think it was in the spring of 2017, I felt like, okay, like we've, the product was really taking off. We had a good social media following and I was kind of getting a handle on the day to day. And I remember I went over to Vancouver and I'd take these trips to Vancouver and drive. I'd get this list of places that I wanted. And would you just show up? Yeah. I'd often call ahead and be like, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. Make way. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it was a very different experience. In Victoria, and this is like the, the difference, right? We're so lucky here is that like we're a, a little big city mm-hmm. and people know each other, but, uh, you know, it's big enough that there's a big market here, but mm-hmm. it's not so small that like, you know, people know you by name, obviously, but um I could go into stores and be like, hi, I'm Jill. I grew up born and raised in Victoria and I've got this product I'm launching and here, taste it. It tastes great. And this is how I'm doing. I'm going to drive to your store and I'm going to deliver it and I'm going to demo because I didn't have a distribution until June of last year. Mm. And uh, so I would pack up my car and I'd drive around the city and I'd do these demos and I'd do these deliveries. So I was in stores and I was meeting customers and I was meeting store staff. I was meeting you know, the managers. So people knew me and they knew my product. So I replicated that when I went over to Vancouver and nobody knows you there. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares where you're from. And it's, there's a lot, the food producing scene there is intense and competitive, right? So it's like walking into these places, I got shut down so many times and, uh, you know, eventually it started to pick up the big break that came was when I was listed in Whole Foods um, and Which I want to come back and talk to you about. Yeah, we can talk to you. We can talk about it now if you like. Sure. Yeah, it's been a. How'd you do it? That it's interesting. The, so we we've actually had. I have some very. I have some breaking news actually. On okay. The podcast, but um, yeah. So uh, the Whole Foods um is a really interesting process. It's the thing is Whole Foods not our biggest retailer. It's one of our most important though. Um, it has to do with um. 
the influence that the, the company has on nutrition, shopping, product development. Um, and uh, so the time that I went to pitch my product, I don't know if they're doing this anymore, but they used to, it was really hilarious. So it was kind of like an audition, like a cattle call. So it was like, there was two dates. It was over a weekend and wherever you were in the province, you had to come in and it was at the Omni hotel in Vancouver, right down in Robson. And it was kind of like speed dating and they actually characterize it as speed dating. How did you find out about it? Well, I've been trying to apply for a while and the paperwork to get in is really tough to get on the shelf and even to it's get a, really hard. a door open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, it's an grocery is highly bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. So the forms and stuff and like the food safety audits and the insurance and like just all the stuff and the standards, particularly with whole foods that you have to meet and prove, mm. um, for something that's never done it before, it's a minefield. So it was really tough. And I remember I finally got all my paperwork in and then it was like the week I submitted it, the um, uh, head office down in um, Austin shifted their protocol and they now wanted local producers to come do this audition. So mm. despite the fact of having all of my paperwork in, I then got bounced to this audition phase and I was just like, okay, this is crazy. So um, I was asked to come in and pitch. And uh, so I went down to this, this um to this hotel and I'll never forget it. Like there was just all of these like young, overly caffeinated, like sweaty, nervous food entrepreneurs, like huddled in corners with their products. And like people are just like American Idol. Oh, it was crazy. It was so funny. Remember this one woman who like couldn't pronounce one of the ingredients in her product. (laughs) And I was like going over it with her. But I thrive in those conditions. Like, and we can talk about Dragon's Den too. I mean, that was another one that was, uh, it was a, a big pivot in the company. But um, I I thrive under pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really know where it comes from. I think one day I just realized I was like, well, I mean, even if you make a total ass of yourself, like it's going to be a blip on the radar. So you may as well just give it your all. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I pitched. And the way you do it is you sit across the table from one of their buyers or purchasers and you do the pitch and they interrogate you and you either get passed to the table and they sign you up on this computer right then and there. And that starts the, that kicks off all the document processing or you're asked to leave. (laughs) And it was like, it was super intense and people would come out just looking shell shocked (laughs) all to get listed in whole foods. So I, uh, I passed with flying colors and was, um, yeah, it was great. It was a big moment. I mean, to start this company and, and mm-hmm. then to finally get onto shelves in Whole Foods. And um, Whole Foods is now um, one of our flagship retailers. And we are going to be on shelves uh, in Toronto in the GTA um, in September. So we w- flew out to Toronto to pitch in March. I think yep. it was March. And then uh, just recently, um, we, we've been looking at expanding to the States for some time now. We have a big trade show coming up. It's the biggest natural food trade show in the world. It's in Anaheim. We're, we're going to be showing there. It's a, that's going to be it. That's the, the next like ladder rung for us. It's a really mm. big one. Um, so we, we've been planning this roadmap for, um, about a year. I've been trying to map this out. And since I brought on Steve, um, who's our CGO, um, we've been really mapping this out carefully and, uh, but we got, um, called down to Seattle 
to speak with what they call a local forager who does all of the Pacific Northwest. So that means like BC um, and Washington and Oregon. And uh, they thought, you know, we were hoping that maybe we get on shelves there mm. nine months a year. And we got a call the very next day after we flew back from Seattle. And they said, can you be ready for August? And I was like, oh. no, I can't be ready for August, but I can be ready for September. So um, it's still, we're still in the process of everything. Mm. So I don't want to say we will be on shelves, but um, tentatively we'll be on shelves in every Whole Foods in Washington and Oregon in October, I would say. Yeah, you thought so. Yeah. That's yeah. great. How does it work with these stores? Are you setting your price or are they it's, negotiating? Yeah, with it's you? a fraught relationship for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so it's funny when I built Fatso out, I had, again, had such little knowledge of the grocery industry that I broke it into thirds. So I broke it into a third for me, a third for the manufacturer and a third for the store. Mm-hmm. What I missed in there was brokerage and distribution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that, I mean, the store ultimately to answer your question, will set the price, uh, you know, Whole Foods sets it at a, a slightly higher premium, but we're working with them to bring that down. Um, places like I was reading some comments on our Facebook today, uh, PEI, like they sell it for twelve ninety nine out right. there, and our our price point is nine ninety nine. Who sets the wholesale price? Is that you? Or I the set store? the wholesale price. Every store is on board with that. Do they? Oh, sorry, no. The distributor will set that wholesale price, but we okay. sell to our distributors across the board. Nobody gets preference. Okay. Yeah. So we um, have built that in now, thankfully. But um, one of the other core tenets for me, and this is like, I have very strong opinions about health food um, and who has access to health food. Mm-hmm. Um, and focusing more on the idea that who has access to health food, but more importantly, who doesn't have access to health food. And it, I've, um, I actually wrote about this in Eat Magazine about this sort of elitism around like the organic industry and health food industry and how, I mean, just in my own experience, because we don't use organic peanuts. And one of the reasons I do that is that I don't want to jack my price up to a 15 to $20 price point. So one of the core goals with Fatso was to rival like almond and cashew butters, mm. mostly because of the price. Uh, an average person can't afford a jar of almond butter. But I remember, I mean, like, I come from a place of, like, extreme privilege. Like, I can buy almond butter. I don't have to worry about it. <clears throat> but um, I remember thinking, like, why am I buying, like, $15 jars of almond butter? Yeah. Like, I don't, like, I, like somebody told me that it was better for me. But I can't remember who or where I got that information from. It was just this, like, collective shift towards, like, we're not eating peanut butter anymore. We're going to eat almond and cashew mm. butter. We're going to eat, eat these, like, better nuts. And, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I, um, I started to really think about that and I sort of like, you know, peanuts being my, my, uh, bread and butter, so to speak. Um, when I was in Uganda, what I noticed is that there's a reason why they harvest, uh, peanuts there Mm -hmm. and they use it in all these sauces and for all these different things. They call it OD out there. The reason is because it's high in antioxidants, minerals, and protein. Um, it's, uh extremely environmentally sustainable. So it doesn't require a lot of water. They grow on hot air, dry climates and they grow like weeds and they're not labor intensive. So with all of those things in mind, that's one of the reasons why peanuts are grown and they're, they're cheap and easy to produce and to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reason uh, that is also the reason why 
you not only see this as a cornerstone of diets throughout Africa, um, Asia, Southeast Asia, um, like different cuisines in like China, like Sichuan cooking. Um, you see it as a, um, a commodity staple throughout North America. Europeans have never really gravitated towards peanut butter. I'm not quite sure why, but um, almost every continent in the world can grow peanuts. And so I really started to think about this concept and why we've moved away from peanuts and towards like almond and cashew butters. And they're more questions than answers. Which are far less sustainable. Super unsustainable. If, if at all sustainable. Yeah. So with almonds, it's a water an issue um, and a bee issue. Bees. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you look at Northern California, which used to have massive crop diversification. And it was this breadbasket for the rest of, um, for us as well. And yeah, like absolutely. in BC and Alberta. Um, so tons of different crops now. Almonds are monocrops. You can yep. only grow almonds around almonds. Uh, they're trees. Yep. Uh, they require an intense amount of water to produce. And many believe, um, and there's some studies out there. There's a good one by the New York Times if you're interested in like the empirical research. But um, that shows that um, like almonds have contributed to this drought situation in Northern California. Absolutely. Um, and uh, cashews, um, also a monocrop, but their specific issue is more of a human nature one. Uh, the labor issues surrounding it, um, mm-hmm. highly unregulated, mm-hmm. um, very poor working conditions. And now they're everywhere, mm-hmm. especially with the rise of vegan ice creams yep. and other products. Yep. Cashews are everywhere. Yep. And, I, and I just wonder how sustainable can that be? Yeah, it's a very interesting um, dichotomy, this, this idea of like health food and veganism and the morality around that. And then this sort of unseen... Um, uh, human implication and environmental implication that for some reason gets lost in the conversation about environmentalism. It gets lost in the conversation yeah. about what is good for the body and what is bad for the body. Um, because, and like, I, I love my vegans and I, I, I totally respect what they do. Um, but I do find that the conversation gets diluted a bit and we forget mm-hmm. to talk about like, okay, we're going to talk about that. Let's look at, you know, this other outcome. Huge so, cost to it. it Environmental is huge, cost. Yeah, yeah. With your peanuts, non-organic, do you know the quality of them? Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. So we grow our peanuts. Uh, well, we don't grow them. The farmers in Alabama grow them. Okay. Um, so it's really interesting. We're non-GMO. Um, okay. And so the, the issue is not sprayed peanuts. The issue is rotator crops. So rotator crops, um, and this is one of the great things about peanuts, is that you can grow other things. Like cotton. Like cotton. Now, mm-hmm. cotton's a highly sprayed co- crop. Mm-hmm. So there is soil contamination. And uh, so there's some of our farms that do that, some of our farms that don't, because we use farms in Georgia, Texas, Alabama. Um so I was actually met with the Peanut Council of America and totally geeked out with them when I was down at Expo West. I was walking the show and uh, I had talked to a farmer and it was interesting to see his reaction because I asked him about this, like, you know, how are you coping with the demand for organic and non-GMO and all this stuff? And I could the, the frustration was visible mm-hmm. because he said, you know, if we went non-organic, we'd all be out of business. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, we look at peanut butter as something that's like milk, bread, butter, peanut butter. And, uh, he, you know, talked me through like that process. And a lot of the time it's like these organic farms are right next to non-organic farms. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's like the winds that come in and it's a very complicated. So what's the quality of yours? 
Uh, we use uh, uh, non-GMO. Number, yeah, non-GMO. Number yeah. one runners. Um, they're they're a basic peanut that's used in most peanut butters. Okay. Uh, the Valencia peanut is the one that's most coveted, but it puts you closer to a um, an organic price point. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the reasons, so this is what I would say to people, and I I get it, and I think there are people out there that want to commit to organic, and I I appreciate that, and I respect that, and I think that's great. If you can afford to do that, go for it. I think it's wonderful. Um, there are people that can't afford to do that. And one of my core values with Fatso is to keep health food accessible. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we add in these really great quality ingredients and we produce a peanut butter that is non-organic. We use organic coconut oil, uh, organic chia as well. So where we can use organic, we will. But we need to keep it at a price point that makes it accessible. Are you considering a premium product at some point that is no, organic? No, no, we are not. Um, we have looked at it. Mm-hmm. I've looked at doing almond butter, but it goes against my values around mm-hmm. um, the price point. And organic is the same for us. And what we want to do is, um, you know, I always encourage people, you know, if they're highly sensitive to um, sprayed um, peanuts, that there are great organic peanut butters out there on the market. Mm-hmm. Fatso won't do that because I value the accessibility of health food um, above um, the organic issue. And mm-hmm. that's my, and the thing is, that's my personal preference, right? And that, that's my political view, mm-hmm. right? And as a founder and as a CEO, I get the benefit of you being able to, to insert that. those things into my company. Right. Um, but what was interesting, one of the things I wanted to say about the GMO issue too, is this farmer we were talking to and I, you know, we're, we use non-GMO with lots of peanuts. They're not a GMO risk ingredient, so they're often not used just because they're a highly resilient crop. But he said, you know, it's frustrating because we are doing GMO research. But, you know, and you'll know about this, it's like there's the GMO sprays mm-hmm. and then there's genetic modification through breeding. Yes. And what they're trying to do is to create a peanut that has bred out the allergen component. Mm. And he says, we still get pushback from people. Mm-hmm. And what we're, and he's like, it's so frustrating because it's all natural. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to create a product that's going to be, you know, everybody can enjoy Mm -hmm. so um you know it it is uh it's a big part of my job is to manage the perception of organic and the bad rap that peanuts get and try to give people like a good um view of the research and a good view of all of the different components and i understand like the downside of sprayed produce and sprayed peanuts or um, peanuts that are used in uh, cotton fields there. I understand the risks associated with that, but there, my view is, is somebody in business is that there are people out there who are going to value a product that is nutrient dense and accessible to them over, you know, saving everything up to, to buy organic. And that's been, we have to stick to that core value Yep. Um, in order to create the best possible product for that portion of the population. Okay. Now I am cognizant here of our time. We have about 30 minutes. Okay. And there are definitely some other things sure. I want to jump into. Mm-hmm. Let's actually talk about the nutrient profile mm-hmm. of fat cell. Yeah. So our listeners have a better understanding of what it is. Yeah. So um, the thing that we don't do is we don't add sugar and we don't add palm oil. So if you're familiar with fatso, we have three flavors out. We have our classic, we have cocoa, and we have our crunchy salted caramel. So in the classic, what we've done is we've taken a variety of super fats. So 
um, uh, coconut oil um, and avocado oil, MCT oil, uh, if you're not familiar with that term, medium chain triglycerides. It's actually a derivative of coconut oil. Mm-hmm. Um, MCT oil is uh, one of the only fats that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. It's used often to aid in cognitive function, brain function, uh, processes through the liver easily. Uh, it's a really easy to digest fat, so it's great for digestion. Um, so we've put something in there that has something that's going to help with, sorry, I want to be clear about this because it's still a grocery product and mm-hmm. I don't want people to think of it as a supplement. Yeah. Uh, this should be something that is supportive of a holistic diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anti-inflammatory, uh, good for cognitive function, good for joint and, um, uh, muscle health. Uh, so all of the ingredients that we put in there have a specific function. Uh, the tapioca fiber, um, that's, uh, is also a prebiotic. So it's a soluble fiber, um, and it's a proprietary blend. So it's not just tapioca flour. People get, um, sort of, uh, they think that maybe it's tapioca flour, but it's actually a proprietary blend developed by a company here in Canada. And it acts as a sweetener that's similar to stevia. So it's all natural, low glycemic index, low calorie. Um, but it doesn't have the weird aftertaste that Stevie has. Like I'm somebody that's highly susceptible. It's like cilantro. It's like some mm-hmm. people have the cilantro gene. I have the Stevia gene. I hate it. Mm. Um, but the nice thing is, is unlike some of these other natural, sti- um, like erythritol or... Have you tried the Stevia fresh? Stevia no, I should though. I'm always looking for alternatives. We have some here. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a taste. Yeah. Um, we actually just did some... Very with... different than is it? the process. Yeah. Because yeah. I had this... Um, we went down to Wisconsin. We were looking at... Uh, um, some of these ingredients, <laughs> they put this like, it was like the tiniest speck of, um, this highly concentrated stevia and I couldn't get the taste out of my mouth, like, right. but I'm just highly susceptible to it. So, um, but, uh, the tapioca fiber, um, unlike other natural sweeteners actually has a health benefit to it. So mm-hmm. as a soluble fiber, it's going to help to encourage healthy gut bacteria as a prebiotic. So mm-hmm. a probiotic, um, uh, by comparison, puts in healthy bacteria, a prebiotic helps to encourage the healthy bacteria that's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the foundation of our company's, uh, or of our, of a fat. So it's nutritional profile. Um, and what we liked, we have, you know, lots of people from like the CrossFit community, um, trail running, uh, snowboarding, surfing. Um, we're going to be working with some, um, with some uh, rock climbers on the States as well. So we call it a high performance peanut butter because what we've done is we've taken the extremely nutritionally dense peanut. Mm-hmm. Um, we've added in these high performance super fats. Um, we've made it taste better than any other product, um, any other nut butter on the shelf. And this is sort of my goal here with Fatso is to beat our competition in terms of taste, nutrition, and value. Mm-hmm. I want to provide the best possible product that's going to be the best for you, but I want everybody to be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually been our, like, that's where we carved our, uh, carved out our niche mm. in, on the shelves and that's where we remain competitive. But, um, we, uh, then developed, uh, Fatso Cocoa. So this one was a bit different. We've struggled with this, this skew a little bit because as I said, we don't use palm oil and we don't use sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to achieve a true chocolate flavor, you need three basic components. You need sugar, you need um, cocoa butter, and you need cocoa powder. That makes the chocolate that you know and love. We couldn't put that in there. We couldn't put the sugar in there. And the cocoa powder and cocoa butter on its own just has the bitterness Bitter. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did was we um, 
put in cocoa butter as one of the main ingredients with the peanut butter. Uh, and then we put in an unsweetened, highly dense chocolate. So no sugar added and it doesn't have any milk solids to it. So it's like a pure chocolate. Um, and then added in the MCT oil, chia and flax. We took out the avocado and the coconut oil because it interfered with the um, chocolate flavor. Mm -hmm. The scent of chocolate and the taste of chocolate doesn't come from the cocoa powder necessarily. Um, that adds like a different tannin to it, but it's the cocoa butter that people like because mm. it brings in the texture and the, and then, um, the flavor to it. So mm -hmm. if you smell chocolate, what you're smelling is, oops, is actually cocoa butter. Okay. So, um, we developed that product has a very different consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, we made the mistake of saying, please refrigerate. And it just turns it to this like solid block. <laughs> so we've changed the label packaging. It should be our next run should have like the amended language on there but it's a really rich product mm. and uh so that's been really great and then uh crunchy salted caramel which is our newest skew yeah uh this one is just going off the charts is it yeah it's crazy yeah people wanted a crunchy version they wanted a salty version they wanted a new flavor and i said i'll give you all three how do you do the caramel without sugar yeah, so we use a uh, ultra clean uh, natural salted caramel flavoring. We had it developed spe uh, especially for us because we know that we don't want to put in um, like any unnatural uh, artificial flavors, mm -hmm. uh, colors. So it's um, a variety of plant-based botanicals that they use. So it's essentially, it's like essential oils. Mm -hmm. um, and it was developed by a company in Montreal and okay. it is a really beautiful flavor. I mean, we add a little bit of like a natural coconut flavoring to the... Uh, Fatso Classic as mm -hmm. well. Um, but yeah, we had this developed because we were worried because uh, when we were doing the research, the uh, crunch, the salted caramel flavoring, if you don't go really natural, can be a little chemically, which mm -hmm. we really wanted to stay away from. So um, this one was developed for us. And, uh, and then we added in pink Himalayan salt mm -hmm. because when I first tasted it, I understood that it was salted caramel flavor, but you need actual salt. Mm -hmm. because that's the way your palate works, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, it was like one of those situations, there's a term used in, this is probably not the best analogy, but I've always thought of it this way, in artificial intelligence, and they call the uncanny valley, where it's like you can never build a robot human enough because the more human it looks, the more weird it is. Um, and I find that with like natural flavorings, if you're saying it's a salty, because salt is like a very specific taste, and yeah. you need to have the salt in there. So without it, you're like, I know it's salted caramel, but right. somehow it's not. So we put the pink Himalayan salt in and nice. it hits the side of the tongue and the crunchiness. And yeah, it's been it's been really great. Any new products in the making? Um, so we're considering a few things. I mean, um, obviously, we're always looking for new opportunities. Um, we want to look for some alternative packaging um, that's going to make... Uh, eating fats on the go a little bit easier. Okay. Um, so we're working towards that. That's been a very, very difficult project. Like squeeze packs. Squeeze packs, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, hard to do. Um, that, I'm increasingly, like many people... Because you do have some competition doing that. Yeah, it's actually kind of blowing up mm -hmm. doing that, but that's mostly in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and some of it's been around for a yeah. decade or more. Yeah, well, Justin's... A couple decades, yeah. yeah. Justin's yeah. been doing it for a long time. Um, but there's the ones that we want are these like... Like, you know, the, the kids like fruit yep. and they have like the twist yep. off. That's what we want. Okay. Um, so you can throw it in your backpack, gym bag, yep. you know, take it wherever you need to go. But, um, I'm increasingly conscious of our packaging. Mm -hmm. We are, we do package in plastic mm -hmm. and, uh, 
we there's no industry leader it's either glass and again it's one of those situations where people are like why don't you just go glass and it's like well look into the research about the carbon offset of glass yep. making yep. how much it like more carbon it takes to transport heavier material like it's just you know it's the mm-hmm. whole i mean it doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it but it's also very very expensive so we're looking at doing post-consumer recycling for our plastic jars right now mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's interesting. There's no like, you know, our big competitions, I'm, I'm not going to say by name because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because we actually really love our competition. I have mm-hmm. friends in the industry, um, but we need an industry leader to yeah. to really set that standard to bring those prices down. Um, but we are looking into um, what's called our pet or um, post-consumer recycling. And um, so we're looking at that, but um, I'm interested in doing a nut or seed butter. Uh, something like that, because um, we don't want to do cashew or almonds, but we might do some sort of like hybrid butter mm. um, that can use sort of some sustainable um, ingredients. Uh, we want to provide something that is not going to contain peanuts necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but it's still economical, environmentally friendly, and um, going to taste really good. Yeah. How much does marketing play a role in Fatso? It's huge. It's it's so important for us. I mean, we're really lucky. Um, you know, this, I'm so, I'm, I've actually become very fascinated in, um, what we call consumer packaged goods. So anything you buy off the shelf that's packaged is called a consumer packaged goods. Um, and it's this, you know, I don't know, like two decades ago, we didn't see stuff like this, like the highly branded, graphically appealing, um, plays a huge part in how people shop and buy. I mean, we've always known this, but we're now seeing that these like very brand heavy, mm-hmm. aesthetically um, focused <clears throat> products are coming out. Now, I I got really lucky. Um, so our marketing is based mostly off social media. Okay. Didn't know I was good at social media. I mean, my personal pages are a mess, so <laughs> I don't know how I managed to do it with Fatso, but... Uh, what's been interesting is um, we have, like, I, I would make, I, I'm relatively good at uh, food, um, like, design and styling. Mm-hmm. And I had, that was, like, the creative outlet for me when I started Fatso was creating dishes like toasts and porridges and smoothies and all sorts of stuff using Fatso. And I, I developed a skill for it. And then it kind of encouraged other people to do it, too. And they would post stuff and make it really pretty. And then I would repost it. Mm-hmm. And we started to get this, like, I mean, 75% of our social media content is user generated. Mm. Like we have food bloggers and nutritionists and food stylists and just average people doing beautiful things. I mean, peanut butter is an awesome medium because mm. you can put it on almost every anything. And if you put a few berries on it and give it a good filter, it looks gorgeous, right? So it's become this very interactive platform um, and we are highly engaged with our customers. And uh, so we repost their, all of their, like all of our stories on our Instagram. Um, and if you're interested in checking it out, it's at eat fatso. Um, and uh, so we have this very interactive and engaged customer base, but we don't pay people for their, um, like we have a lot of influencers that want to collaborate, quote unquote, collaborate with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, we've stopped doing that. I did it a couple times and I was just like, I felt dirty whenever I'd see the post. I was like, I don't even know if you like this, but right. we send out product to people all the time, all over North America. Do you have ambassadors or sponsors? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have right now we have, um, we have 
six to seven sponsored athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have Lucas Parker, who is a CrossFit uh, athlete, um, has been to the games many times, actually uh, local to Victoria. Mm. Um, he was one of my mom's students. My mom taught kinesiology and he was my coach for some time, but he's out in Toronto now. So he's one of our athletes. Um, I have um, Robin Van Jean, and if that name sounds familiar, it's also my last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been a pro snowboarder for 20 years, um, rides for Roxy and Quicksilver, and does some of the best. She's one of the best, and I'm not just saying this because she's my sister, but she's one of the best like um, big mountain riders, uh, female big mountain riders in the world. Nice. Um, and, uh, and her partner, Austin Sweeten, who is also, um, does a lot of backcountry, like Alaska style, like mm-hmm. they're amazing. So, um, they're also on our team and, uh, we have, who else do we have? Um, we've got a few Olympians, um, Gies Landry, uh, she's local to the, she's the captain of the Canadian rugby team. Um, and, uh, we're going to help support her on the way to the Olympics. Um, uh, Micah Powell, uh, who is out of Toronto, who is a very young and up and coming sprinter, um, we're going to support her. We've actually started to support her in her Olympic trials as well. Okay. Um, we've got uh, Chris Holt out of Utah, and he does um, uh, CrossFit as well. Mm. Big advocate for keto, posts some of the best photos. Uh, he came to us very naturally as just a fan of Fatso. Mm-hmm. And uh, Noah Cohen, who is a, um, a Team Canada, he did, uh, I believe, Team Canada for the Olympics for surfing, local to Tofino. Amazing rider, travels the world, does big wave, and yeah, he's a really cool guy. So, um, yeah, we've got a great core team of athletes. And uh, do you pay them, or is it product? Or? We pay some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what they're doing for us and what their mm-hmm. needs are. So, especially if they're competing athletes, we'll support them in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes we pay like a monthly stipend depending on where they're at in their career. If they rely on sponsorship solely. Um, yes, we will provide them uh, like uh, a stipend and that way we can support them in moving them forward in their career. Um, so it helps with travel expenses, um, supplies, and um, and then we, of course we outfit them with all the fatso and some of our apparel. Mm. And nice. um, But these uh, like uh, Geese Landry and um, Mike Powell, they um, are, oh, and Emily Rolf, I should say too, who's local too. Uh, Abbotsford, I believe, um, she landed a spot at the CrossFit Games this year, and uh, we're helping to send her down there. Um, and we support local teams as well. We sent a team to Wadapalooza in Miami uh, last or in January. Um, a team of three uh, female athletes who just crushed down there. It was awesome. So we're always looking for opportunities to support athletes, um, and that's where we've decided to put our sponsorship money, as opposed to working with like. Instagram influencers. Um, We want to move people who are like these, these athletes who are moving forward in their career and we're happy to throw money and product Mm. and whatever we can. Fits better with your brand position. Yeah. 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 So let's talk numbers because Mm -hmm. you are a relatively new company. You're supporting these athletes. Do you mind sharing some of the figures? No, not at all. It's a, it's an interesting story. So when we first, when I first launched um, my first year and I couldn't believe it. I remember getting like the accounting report back and just being like, Wow, I sold fifty thousand dollars worth of peanut butter. I wasn't making any money, um, but it was amazing to me that so I sold that much. That was November twenty sixteen, or so, you took the three months? No, that's so yeah. When we launched November twenty sixteen, in that first year, I think I did. It was between fifty and sixty thousand. Okay. The second year, as I expanded throughout BC, got bigger contracts like with Overweighty Foods. Um, I hit six hundred thousand, so nice. grew ten x. Wow. 
um, we're looking at finishing our fiscal year at about uh, 2.5 million. Wow. Yeah. So it's phenomenal growth. Yeah. Really big growth. Scares the shit out of banks though. So, um, we're, you know, we're in this really interesting phase. I mean, success breeds problems. And one of those problems is cash flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're getting bigger purchase orders. We're having to put in, um, larger, uh, POs to our manufacturer and, uh, we're bumping up against this, like bringing in money versus paying yep. the, and this is, this is really where the growth issues start to happen. So have you had to take on any investors? Uh, yes, we have. Yeah. We've yeah. got two local investors. Um, so uh, if anybody watched the Dragon's Den episode, um, I ended up taking a deal on the show with Arlene Dickinson, who I just adore and she mm-hmm. was my target all along. And that was a fantastic experience, but oh, she's an investor in the baby pouch. Yeah. Point. She does that. Um, yeah, I as- believe. In smart suites too. And is that helping that connection? Uh, no, because I actually didn't end up taking the deal with her. Got it. Yep. Okay. Um, I knew my company was worth more. Okay. Um, I needed more money and I didn't want to give up the amount that she was requesting. So okay. um, I went local and I've got two local investors that are here in Victoria. Okay. And uh, that's been really helpful. Um, just that gave us like that gave me seed money in my second year mm-hmm. to get going, and uh, I mean obviously we've been able to really prove ourselves as a growth company. Now we're working. We've worked with the Business Development Bank of Canada, and now we're trying to just work on operational mm-hmm. lines of credit because it's just about breathing room. Like we're pretty good at bringing in the money, but mm-hmm. it's like you bump up against this sort of like, ooh, I haven't had that like bank account balance in a while. Like I'd like to like make sure that we you know, are feeling like we have a lot of breathing room. So, you know, it is, is it, that gets tricky is that the more successful you become, the higher the demand, you have to forget, like you need to put the money down to produce the product. Mm -hmm. If you don't have product to sell, you don't have a company. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, we're looking at avenues to help create that breathing room, but we've been very lucky. We're, we're, we're not in any danger, but it's just like, we want to have that nice sort of, are you profitable right now? been profitable every year every yeah. year every year yeah yeah i i don't know i mean i know how i did it the first two years i didn't have any staff <laughs> like i just all i did was pay the manufacturer so yeah. i used to pack up my car it hold, held uh 73 cases of fat so and i would drive that over and back into like the receiving bays right. at like whole foods and drive around vancouver and so i didn't have to pay any of those costs for delivery mm-hmm. or for distribution i didn't i did all my own sales and brokering hmm. Um, and then it wasn't until, uh, February that brought Steve on who does like, he acts somewhat as a broker, but is like the liaison to the grocery industry and, uh, really focuses on our, our growth. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I just kind of did it all, which is one of the things that I had to do. If I had taken on employees right away, not only would my overhead been bonkers, but I wouldn't have learned a little bit of everything. As Mm -hmm. I said earlier, um, that has put me in a position to have like a really good grasp on like, how does the grocery industry work? How do these accounts payable work? Like the tax situation and, you know, what are the operations and logistics look like? Because I've been involved uh, every step of the way. So do you have a growth target in mind? Do you... Well, I mean the, the most common question we get is like, do you guys, are you guys gonna, are you looking for an exit? Mm-hmm. And that's generally how these companies go. You look at, you know, Justin's peanut butter, you look at RX bar, $600 mm-hmm. million, $300 million. Um, I love my job. I'm, uh, uh, we've got a baby due in 
I think who is it now? Like 27 days. Uh, <laughs> so some, very pregnant. You've got some time. Yeah, yeah. I've got some time to figure it out. Um, but uh, I have just never enjoyed my life in the way that I do now. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know, like, I, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for the opportunities that I've been afforded. Mm. Like I would never be able to start this company if I didn't have a dad that had like $5,000 he could lend me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I talk about when I talk about earlier about the luck and the positioning. Um, and, uh, you know, the girl's target is, you know, moving on to the States. We want to be, you know, a $40 million company in the next, you know, four or five years, which I think is not even that ambitious. I think that's quite doable for us. Um, but, uh, yeah, I found my my place in life and you know, it's it's very interesting because I struggled my entire life to find where I belonged and you know, my history and it's probably for another podcast, but like I've not had a straight line to anything. Mm-hmm. Um I came from a great family, our family was financially stable, but um you know, I had some deviations in my life for sure. Um, and now I'm 39, (laughs) like just starting to find my, my feet. And, you know, I'm just at this place where, you know, we've got this baby on the way and the company's running and we're not worried about money, uh, close relationships with family and friends and just watching this like company grow. I just feel extremely fortunate. And it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, being a profitable company, uh, being, um, somebody that's uh, talked about widely in the community uh, where we do a lot of uh, good giving back as well. Um, to, And this is like the thing that I love the most too, is that I have very strong political views um, and social views, and it's afforded me the opportunity to give back to companies or organizations like peers that work on um, supporting sex, sex workers and reducing um, the risk of sex work and recognizing sex work as work. Um, LGBT and trans uh, organizations, we gave back a whole bunch. We did 1% of our sales to uh, Victoria Pride and Community, which is a trans and two-spirited resource center for youth in uh, in Vancouver. Um, and AIDS Vancouver Island, which is close to my heart as well. They do a ton of work around harm reduction and uh, like social housing, um, AIDS advocacy, uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, so I've been very fortunate with this company that like, I have put that out there as like, this is what I'm going to do with our profits. Like mm-hmm. when we make money, we want to give back to those communities and we have, um, we're going to work on some um, other really interesting upcoming charities, maybe around food security and body positivity and, uh, and that type of thing and, and women's issues. And um, so like, I just like, I don't know, it's great. And like, I don't know, it could all come crashing down tomorrow, but for today it's uh it's been it's been amazing. It sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a lot on the go and you also just bought a new farm, which Well, my parents did. Okay. Um we're we're buying into it. Okay. Yeah, we uh we're over on the, in the Blenkinsop Valley. My parents bought the property and my husband and I sold our real estate, uh our little starter house and we got lucky, uh sold at the right time and so we'll be putting that money into the farm. Nice. Yeah, and it's uh, wonderful. It's uh, it's in just a beautiful area of Victoria, and it's 15 minutes from downtown, but mm-hmm. you feel like you're in the countryside. And yeah. 
Um, we're going to be growing um, apples for cider and juice and figs as well, being one of my absolute favorite fruits. Also a cash crop, so yeah. a smart thing to do. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be, uh, you know, my parents are out there now and, you know, they'll, we've got this baby on the way, so we're extremely fortunate to have them close by and, you know, as they grow older, we'll be there to support them. And um, I've got two sisters who, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, they all, they'll always come home as well and it's mm. their farm too. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, we've just uh, settled into this pretty nice life for the time being and life can throw you some like really immense curveballs. So I'm never really stopped looking over my shoulder because I've had a few of those in my life. But um, for the time being, yeah, the, the, um, the success and the, and the happiness that I've been able to find through this career has, uh, has uh, yeah, just made me feel very grateful. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. We are up against our time limit. I, do you want to let listeners know where they can find out more about Fatso? And- yeah. Yeah, you can go to eatfatso.com, E-A-T-F-A-T-S-O. Um, and then on social media at eat fatso. And if you have questions, uh, email us info at eatfatso.com. And if we're not in your stores, just ask your manager and we'll get it in there. And, uh, yeah, I hope you check it out. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to come in and tell a bit of my story. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Jill Van Jean of Fatso. If you find yourself chomping at the bit to learn more about nutrition, check out what the School of Holistic Nutrition at Pacific Rim College has to offer. If you don't want to relocate to Victoria, BC for schooling, we have you covered with online courses and programs through Pacific Rim College Online. A particular interest to the fattiness of this episode is the online course by Sally Fallon Morell called Achieving Optimal Health Through Nourishing Traditional Diets. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. And if you like this podcast, please give it a positive rating on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Until next time, stay mindful and keep learning.